Um, our scenarios <clears throat> showed that that even in the most conservative assumptions about how battery costs might trend, saw at least a five-fold increase in that capacity, um, all the way up to almost 650 gigawatts deployed um, by the year 2050. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Jenny Jorgensen, energy systems engineer with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado, and the principal researcher for the latest phase of the storage future study, which modeled the effects of large-scale adoption of storage technologies and power grids. So welcome to Energy Talks, Jenny. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. I mean, it is great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Jenny, this is the sixth of a, uh, a series of studies on storage in the U.S. power grid. Just very briefly, what are some of the you know top one or two observations from some of the other studies? Sure. As you mentioned, uh, the Storage Futures Study is a multi-year ongoing project here at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Um, really broadly, just to look at the potential for storage in the U.S. So one of our biggest key conclusions is that storage is poised um, for dramatic growth on the grid um, uh, under many scenarios. That is just sort of um, that speaks to its evolving co cost competitiveness in the in the uh, market, and that is just sort of our big key conclusion. Well, let's talk about benefits of modeling. I'm very interested in the amount of modeling that you're doing, and I see others doing it as well down south of the border. I'm in Canada, and in, in Canada, we're talking about, we're the very early stages of talking about our national grid, because we don't have one. What we have are 10 provinces, and each one has their own separate uh, system, They uh, their electricity system. They they regulate the uh, regulate the uh, grid provincially, but that's not true south of the border. And I, and whereas in Canada there's very little modeling going on, or at least very little that's available to the public. In uh, in the United States, there's a great deal of modeling going on, and of course your laboratory is doing a lot of a lot of it. What from your point of view as a modeler, what are the benefits of doing this much modeling at that level? Sure, I think there are a lot of benefits. Um, so I think, as we all have seen, our power system is, is undergoing rapid transformation. Um, in a lot of cases, we're seeing increased amounts of uh, wind and solar on the power system as those technologies continue to get cost competitive. Um, alongside that, we also see um, really increased interest in energy storage. Uh, and so what people are interested in is um, if we, you know, as we undergo this transformation, what we really need um, is sort of more information or perhaps uh, being more prepared so that we can um, anticipate the challenges that might arise um, and we can already start to think through you know, potential solutions for those challenges. So I think that's the biggest um, benefit to uh, doing a bunch of modeling, as you say. And I think it has been really useful to give us insight into, um, into uh, some of the implications of this transition. Well, let's talk about this particular study. Could you maybe start off with a brief overview, please? Sure. Um, so like I mentioned, this is a multi-year study um, done at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, um, funded by the US Department of Energy. Um, it really started out as, uh, so first a theoretical 
framework to see what technologies might drive storage deployment and how the costs of those um, technologies might uh, trend over time. Uh, so that obviously focused on techno-economic analysis uh, and then looking at the future benefit that those technologies might provide so that we could do that cost benefit analysis as well. Um, so we also looked at uh, both um, mostly in front of the meter, so that's utility scale bulk storage. One of our um, studies also looked at behind the meter or distributed storage as well. Uh, so those were all the, the studies that kind of preceded my modeling analysis, but definitely fed into it in different ways. And what kind of, um, give us an overview of, of the study that you did, please. Sure. So <clears throat> um, another earlier study in the project, it was called the, um, the diurnal, the, sorry, let me actually double check this before I say this. Okay, so my study built on one of the earlier studies in the project. It was called Grid Scale Diurnal Storage Scenarios. That study did um, what is called capacity expansion modeling that considers the optimal gener generation and transmission build out for different scenarios into the future. Um, <clears throat> and all of those scenarios really depicted a dramatic growth in storage deployment in the US. Um, but we were curious on what those high storage systems would actually look like on an operational level, um, you know, so sort of from an hour by hour um, daily balancing level, how would those scenarios play out? So we took a bunch of those scenarios from that capacity expansion model, and we fed them into a more detailed operational model, um, we call it production cost model, and then that allowed us to look how um, the system might balance supply and demand, so all the generation and um, transmission assets compared to the hourly load. Um, and we, we used the, the more detailed model to make sure that, that that actually worked. It actually balanced on an hour by hour level. Um, and promisingly, we didn't see any red flags in terms of overall operation. Um, so that meant that that capacity expansion model had done a good job um, sort of envisioning those scenarios that might actually function on a day-to-day -day basis in the future. How much storage capacity is available now and how much is needed in the future? So um, at the moment here in the U.S., we have around um, 20 gigawatts of utility-scale storage. Almost all of that is uh, pumped hydro storage. Um, so if you compare that to battery, it has a very uh, long duration um, but it doesn't have uh, as high of round trip efficiency as batteries might have. Um, our scenarios <clears throat> showed that that, even in the most conservative assumptions about how battery costs might trend, saw at least a five-fold increase in that capacity, um, all the way up to almost 650 gigawatts deployed um, by the year 2050. So if I understand this correctly, it could be as much as five, so maybe 125 gigawatts, or as much as 600 gigawatts? Um, yes, so in our, in our, in our sort of most um, pessimistic view of how battery costs might trend, um, yeah, it was just over 100 gigawatts in the whole entire US. Um, and in the highest case that saw, saw the most storage deployment, it was up to 650 gigawatts. So obviously that's a huge range and it's influenced by many factors. One of course is the capital cost trajectory of batteries um, but also natural gas prices, um, the cost of renewable energy technologies, 
um, and many other factors that could potentially um, you know, drive the storage capacity to be anywhere within that range. Now, you mentioned pumped hydro, uh, Jenny. What other kinds of storage technologies are we talking about? Because, of course, batteries is an obvious one, but then there are different types of batteries, lithium ion, redox, and, and then there's, uh, uh, we've seen HydroStore make the, the news recently with its um, uh, compressed air uh, technology. It's generating a lot of excitement and we've, there's other, uh, other technologies out there. So what, what kind of technologies did you consider in your, in your modeling? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, for my analysis, uh, and this is not a satisfying answer to your question, but my analysis was really agnostic to technology type because we were just considering how they would operate on a day-to-day -day basis, um, which often is not really impacted by technology, although there is some nuance to that, of course. Um, so all of the batteries that I considered um, were just sort of a generic lithium ion um, technology with various durations. Um, but in earlier studies in the storage features study um, uh, analysis, we took a look, like I mentioned, that techno-economic analysis that encompassed um, many other different types of storage and different battery technologies as well. Did you consider the value of pumped hydro storage combined with renewables? And there's a big debate in, in Canada right now about the value of, of using uh, wind and solar uh, tied in with tr transmission into the provinces that have a lot of hydropower and BC and, and Quebec and Manitoba would be the three big ones. Is, did you consider that at all? Um, yes, so our um, capacity expansion model does include uh, potential value to storage. So that is its value in providing that em energy arbitrage, um, buying electricity when it's uh, low priced and then selling it when it's high priced. Um, so the increase of variable generation technologies, which often have very low marginal cost, naturally um, is sort of a, a good fit for storage because it's really looking for that low marginal cost electricity to charge off of. Um, but specifically, we didn't, we didn't directly consider those completely paired technologies, like maybe you're hinting about, um, but we definitely in our modeling revealed a lot of synergies between um, renewable generation technologies and storage, especially solar, which has a predictable um, on off diurnal pattern, which really pairs well um, with batteries. Yeah, you, you mentioned that it, it's in the, uh, in the executive summary of the report caught my eye, uh, the difference uh, between wind which generates a lot for a lot of uh, electricity uh, for potentially for significant you know weeks at a time, but then can die off and produce uh, very little or nothing and uh, versus uh, solar. Can you maybe explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of our findings, um, yeah, like you mentioned, so PV has a very predictable on off diurnal cycle. Um, so this works really well with batteries because you have a lot of extra energy during the day. And then after the sun sets, you have a great opportunity to discharge any stored energy. So on the other hand, wind, when you have overgeneration conditions or when you have very windy conditions, those often last more than just a day. So in that case, you can charge up your battery, but then you just kind of, once your battery is full, you just have to wait for those, store, for those wind overgeneration conditions to desist before you can actually discharge. So in some cases, it's not quite as sort of a natural fit with batteries. That's not to say 
There's no benefit of pairing them together, but it just sort of works out more naturally with PV. And what about the difference between short duration and long duration? Any conclusions there? Yeah, so, um, and this is also a really economic question as well. What we found um, in the earlier analysis from the storage future study was um, in the near term, so maybe, uh, you know, the, the 2030s or so, if we can call that near term, uh, we saw a lot of deployment of the relatively shorter duration batteries. So that's two or four hour batteries, um, since at the moment they're more cost effective um, to deploy, they cost less to build. Uh, as we move forward in time, you know, so maybe in the 2040 uh, time scale, that's when we really saw the um, slightly longer duration storage be deployed as well, uh, six, eight, and 10 hour durations. So <clears throat> two things are happening, which is um, having a lot more uh, low generation cost, um, marginal, or sorry, variable generation on the system allows those um, resources to take better advantage of uh, arbitrage opportunities, but also their cost had come down over time as we assume, you know, sort of technological advances um, economies of scale and that kind of thing. So really we saw those lower durations take hold in the market earlier uh, and then those longer durations um, take hold you know, a little bit down the line. And is it possible, well, well, let me rephrase. Can enough storage capacity be added to the grid so that the majority of generation comes from wind and solar? Um, so a couple of our scenarios actually address that directly. Um, we have one scenario we called our zero carbon scenario, where by the final build year, we didn't allow any natural gas or coal. Um, so the only resources available um, were wind, solar, um, storage, as well as some renewably powered um, combustion turbines. Um, we also have, in that scenario, we actually get to over 70% um, on a generation basis from wind and solar, um, along with a substantial amount of storage as well. Um, we actually had another case that got to, uh, I think, close to 70%, but not quite as high, that still allowed some um, natural gas generation on the system. So we did have a range of scenarios, and one in particular, um, like you mentioned, where uh, no fossil resources um, or all the fossil resources had to be um, phased out by the year 2050. So I guess uh, it, maybe this is a related question, but you know, there's a debate uh, in the public sphere, it shows up on my social media accounts all the time about the need for baseload uh, in this kind of you know, future grid. So if you can get 70% penetration of wind and solar, do we need baseload anymore? Or is the baseload we have with nuclear and, and hydro, is that enough? So that's, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, in our analysis, you know, the only sort of baseload technologies we allow in that scenario are a tiny bit of nuclear, um, and in some cases, uh, none at all. In that case, what we really have is the rest of these resources um, serving all those requirements at once. So we have wind and solar that are available, um, you know, as, uh, although they're weather dependent, of course, um, we take advantage of, of sort of geographical smoothing over the wide area. Um, we have a lot of battery storage, so that's, you know, relatively shorter duration. But then, as I mentioned, we also have these um, renewable uh, energy-fired combustion turbines, which look very similar to today's combustion turbine technology, 
but the fuel <clears throat> that they run on is based on um, renewables versus based on fossil fuels. So <clears throat> I guess to answer your question, in that, in that system, the, the paradigm is much different than today. There's no you know, baseload generators, intermediate generators, peaking generators. Um, there's just you know, sort of a, a, a wide array of technologies that are providing all of those same services, but it just doesn't look like anything um, that we would you know, sort of compare it to today. Now, when you mentioned these combustion uh, uh, turbines, uh, I, I interviewed an expert in Alberta a couple of months ago, and they was talking about uh, uh, the economics of having a lot of wind and solar, uh, and uh, when there was excess, uh, running that through electrolyzers and, and creating hydrogen, which then would get stored in salt caverns, and then when the system needed it, that would be released and, and run through these uh, combined cycle uh, turbines that, you know, apparently the natural gas plants, uh, the existing ones, can be adapted to running on hydrogen with very at very little cost. Is that the kind of scenario you were considering? Yes, that's definitely the kind of scenario that we were considering, either retrofitting existing technology, like you mentioned, to be able to um, use different kinds of fuel, or perhaps um, uh, building uh, new technologies that, you know, maybe you can envision some sort of um, uh, of of a fuel system that's similar today, but instead of delivering fossil fuels, is delivering renewably derived fuel, um, whether that's hydro, hydrogen, or biofuels, um, whatever it may be. It's a little bit technology agnostic. It just assigns uh, a very high price to that fuel um, because it assumes that you know all that infrastructure needs to be developed in order to be able to deliver it. Um, you know, similar to what we would see today. Uh, how does storage uh, affect transmission or uh, tra how does transmission affect storage, I guess, from your point of view? Sure. So that's a really interesting question. I think um, from the operational standpoint, what we saw was um, different ways that they can interact. Um, on one hand, you could have storage um, that reduces congestion or utilization of the transmission grid because it allows you to store um, local generation, such as perhaps local overgeneration from storage or wind, um, and then use that energy later. So you don't have to depend as much on imports and exports. We also saw the opposite case where you, um, where storage placed at different locations throughout the grid would use that transmission network um, to, per to perform arbitrage across regions. So using that transmission line, which actually increased um, you know, sort of congestion or utilization of those transmission lines. So we saw a really sort of complicated interaction between transmission and storage um, where they can actually sort of help each other out, um, provide that synergy um, where more storage might lead to better usage of the existing transmission system. Would it be fair to say, uh, Jenny, that it would be an advantage uh, then to continue to uh, expand these regional electricity markets and to and to do more development of those those electricity markets so that a regional market would work better with storage? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and it's definitely hard to answer. I think um, that the expansion of regional markets is uh, happening right now. So we see in certain places, um, you know, we think of the Western US um, where new entities are continually joining the markets because they see some value in it. Um, and so it is really interesting to see how that will continue or evolve um, as more storage um, as well as variable generation uh, is deployed, especially here as in the Western US where, where we see that happening at the moment. 
Um, but yeah, that's a really good question. It just gives you more opportunities to sort of take advantage of, of arbitrage, which makes stories more um, enticing from an economic standpoint. Uh, that's all the questions I have, Jenny. Any final thoughts uh, on your study? Um, I, I'll plug that we actually have one more report coming out. There's no new material, but it's just sort of a synthesis of all the findings that we had from the previous six reports. Um, and so I think it will do a really good job of, of tying all of those which are sort of separate reports together um, and then do, giving a final um, you know, key takeaways from the project, what we learned, what we hope people will take away from it um, as the project comes to an end. And that should be published within the next few weeks um, with a webinar uh, from my colleague, Nate Blair as well. Um, I think he'd be happy to, to answer your questions as well, Markham, if anything new comes up between now and then. I've interviewed Nate before and happy oh, great. to meet again. So, yeah. well, Jenny, thank it's you very much for this. This is you've answered. Uh, you've given us some very interesting uh, information. I think it's uh, useful for both our American and Canadian audiences. So, thank you very much for your insights. Great, yeah, Markham. I'm happy to talk to you. I'm happy to follow up later if needed as well. Um, and I really appreciate the invite.